You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's Ben Folks. Ben, uh, you just got back from Toronto, like almost literally. How long have you been home? Maybe 15 minutes. You've been here about 15. See, that's the kind of immediacy that you get with the co-main event podcast. We're not going to give you time to take a shower, put your face on. Mm -mm. As soon as you get home, I'm waiting in the driveway. Like the guys from Sure Dog when, when the Fertitas bought the UFC, sitting on the front steps when they get there, ready to interview them. Yeah, no, and, uh, you know, I'm running on about two and a half hours sleep, uh, about 12 hours of travel, because, of course, there's no such thing as a direct flight uh, out of Missoula to anywhere. Uh, but I'm ready to do the damn thing, you know? I, I'm, what I lack in sleep and uh, coherent thoughts will be made up for uh, with just childlike exuberance and sheer volume yeah i wager i'm not gonna lie though the sleep deprived ben folks with a beer in front of him is my favorite ben folks to do the podcast with uh we're recording this on sunday afternoon what's second favorite uh normal ben folks oh okay and to be honest that guy kind of (laughs) sucks point taken uh we're recording this on sunday afternoon uh because we will both be on vacation with our families this week. That's right. Uh, together, I should add. Eat it. Because even when we're not recording this podcast, we just can't stomach the idea of <laughs> having a day where we don't interact. Uh, and we should also mention that we're recording this one at my house rather than our usual situation at Chad's house. So, you know, you might hear my daughter crying. You might hear my wife reading her a story. My dog might come down here and say what's up to us. A lot of things could happen here. Well, as usual, the co-main event podcast comes to you in three rounds. In round number one this week, if, like a couple of dudes on this podcast, you are one of the people who doubted Alexander Gustafson this week, well, he put it right in your face. And it was easy for him to put it in your face because he's so tall. <laughs> That's the last tall joke, I promise. No, it's not. Okay. No, why, why lie? It's obviously not. And in round number two, now we know what happens when John Jones gets into what he described as a dogfight. Yep, he still wins. But did we learn anything about the UFC light heavyweight champion from his performance? And were any of those things unsettling? And in round number three, I guess we've reached the point in MMA where any rematch, any remotely close judge's decision is going to elicit a raft of complaining and shouts of robbery and a bunch of ridiculousness. Good to know. <laughs> All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Claire Hammond. Uh, Claire Hammond has probably graduated to friend of the podcast status, I'd I would say think. That. Yeah. She is, a. Uh, Loyal, longtime listener who some of you might remember emailed us a gift certificate so we could get all that beer yeah. for our first anniversary, which led to the debacle, which people may know as the co-main event podcast drinking game. Yeah, so you can kind of blame that on Claire Hammond. And, you know, I guess we're probably forever in her debt, and so are all of you. Uh, Claire Hammond writes this week, do you think Joe Rogan was right from the beginning? Hanan Barau is a monster. A monster. So clearly we... uh we saw the interim UFC bantamweight champion come out this week and uh, and kick Eddie Wineland right upside the head with some spinning shit uh, in a fight that up to that point looked fairly competitive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's possible Joe Rogan was right. Hennen Barrow may, in fact, be a monster. Although I don't know if, A, that excuses the dance that he did uh, after the fight. Oh, you didn't like that dance? I mean, if you're a monster, dude, you got no business doing that dance. Come on. You couldn't do that dance. I'm also not a monster. <laughs> I wouldn't even want to see the kind of dance you would attempt. If you in that in that moment, you gotta do something. You don't want it to be something obviously like scripted out because then you look like an asshole kinda. Of, but you don't also don't want to just jump up on the cage and like pound your chest because you know, that's just the first thing everybody thinks of. A little bit of a little bit of flair there. A little How about this? Movement. How about this? Maybe you just walk over to your corner, 
and exchanged knowing nods with your cornermen. Like, yep, we knew that was going to happen. Been here before. I'm a monster. This is what monsters do. Okay, that is kind of that is kind of scary. Uh, that actually reminds me of when uh, Alistair Overeem watched Brock Lesnar uh, enter the cage before their fight. Watched him all the way around as he made his little jog around the cage. Just stood there, just mad dogging him the entire time. And then when he'd seen enough, turned to his brother in his corner and just kind of nodded as if, okay, we got this. So now we've got a situation where the UFC has given real bantamweight champion Dominic Cruz a bit of an ultimatum that he needs to be back in action from the litany of injuries that have kept him out of action for the bulk of his title reign. Basically knee shit. Well, yeah, he had a hand at some point too, though. Yeah, I think that the hand was more WEC, right? I don't know. I think he's broken that hand a couple times. But the knee shit is the bad shit. Yeah, so he's 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 got to come back by the beginning of 2014, uh, or I guess they're going to strip him and just declare Barrow the, uh, the actual champion instead of just being the interim bantamweight champion. Uh, so we're looking at, as long as Dominic Cruz can can make it, which we all hope that he can, a title fight uh, early next year, Barrow against uh, uh, Cruz. Who you got? You know, I really like Dominic Cruz, like his style, love to watch him fight, but god damn, is it a tough assignment for anybody to come back after, by that time it'll be over two years since he's last competed, a lot of that time spent just trying to get his knees healthy enough. I mean, he when I talked to him, he said he'd only started to do martial arts stuff like a month ago. Um, and then to go and fight a guy like Hen Barrow, who it has been established as a monster, uh, like that, j- just jump right into that. I mean, I think it would be kind of a miracle if he won that fight. Yeah, it'd be tough to pick against the monster there. Um, I, I mean, I guess we haven't really seen anyone be able to handle Dominic Cruz at 135 pounds. But when you see Barrow kick Eddie Wineland in the face with his spinning shit, you could pretty easily see that happening to anybody in that weight class, including the guy who legitimately has the real belt at this moment. Well, and the thing is, it, it seems like a, a bad situation where I don't know what the the better solution would be. Like, talking to Cruz, he even said, hey, I think the UFC's been incredibly patient with me. There's nothing bad I can say about him. Even if they, if they say, hey, you got to be back by February 2014, how can I really complain about that with, after all the, the leeway they've extended me? And, you know, you got to admit he's right. I, the UFC, I think, has done the right thing here. They gave him every chance. Eventually, you got to do something there. It's not fair to Hennon Brow. It's not fair to the d- division if you don't. Uh, but at the same time, man... Can you imagine? I mean, that's a tough fight if you're, you know, in the best shape of your life, as I'm sure everybody will be uh, by the time the fight rolls around. Uh, it, you know, if you've been fighting at a steady pace and, and you're, you're totally healthy, Hennenbrow's a tough guy to fight for anybody. I, I just can't see how you, you come back after something like that, and that's got to be your first fight. I mean, it, to me, it seems like I'm already thinking about, okay, what do we say about it after Dominic Cruz loses to Henan Brow immediately after coming back? Do we say Henan Burrell's a monster? That seems like the obvious. Well, that's what we say before say. in a bunch of commercials that will air 7,000 times. You know who's got a weird mannerisms inside the cage while he's fighting is Eddie Wineland. Uh, and I don't like to, to like make fun of a guy for something that he can't really control, but yes, the, you do. the way that he fights is just totally strange to watch. He does this thing where he like kind of marches in place where he like picks one knee up and then the other knee up. It's like he's almost doing like kind of a robot dance, like a very, uh, he's Chad is doing it right now. He's doing an impression of it right now. It's awful to watch. No, it's, it's, I'm showing off my athleticism is what I'm doing. I don't have a point to make about that. It just struck me last night when watching, because for a while, Eddie Wineland was doing pretty good. Yeah, he, was doing he won okay. that first round. Yeah, and then he came out and was doing the robot walk thing and got kicked right in the face. What did you think of the stoppage, which Eddie Wineland said in his personal opinion was bullshit? Well, the weird part is that the the spinning kick definitely looked more devastating in real time than when they actually showed it on, uh, kind of slipped off to the, side. On the replay. Yeah. yeah, it looked like it kind of missed and maybe just uh, 
upset Eddie Wyland's balance more than anything else. But I mean, it's it's all happening so fast. He he kind of falls. It looks like he gets decapitated by the kick first of all. Then he falls down and he's kind of turtled up. Gets hit with a couple of stiff shots there. Um, he probably could have gone on for a little while. But that again, that's one of those things where you don't know that till after the you've seen the slow motion replay, which our referees do not have that technology in their brains yet to watch the slow motion replay before they do the stoppage. Right, and it wasn't like he was in a position where he was just about to spring up to his feet and launch a devastating counterattack. I mean, Burrell had a, had a pretty good uh, position on him and was probably just going to keep hammering away at him. So it's not as if if the referee didn't stop right there, uh, he was in a great spot to turn everything around. And also, being a monster, Henan Burrell gets the benefit of the doubt there. If 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 yeah. Wineland had been a heavy favorite there, you'd probably make more of a stink about the about the stoppage today. But the truth is, we're all just sort of like, well, Henan Burrell was going to win anyway. You, so you, you tangled just, with a monster and you came out with your life. I mean, I don't know how you can be upset with that. The second uh, piece of listener mail this week comes from Vinny Banda. He writes, what are your thoughts on the uh, Ontario Athletic Commission's requirement of Pat Healy to trim his beard prior to the fight this weekend? Uh, Jorge Masvidal filed a complaint against Michael Chiesa for sporting a Jesus beard before the fight, their fight this past July. And Daniel Cormier plans to do the same before his bout with Roy Nelson. Do beards really provide fighters with any significant advantages? I've heard of the whole quote-unquote extra cushioning theory, but it just sounds like bullshit. Yes, Vinny, you are correct i'm gonna come out and say that the beard will not help you uh if you get punched in the face during a a professional mixed martial arts fight i think what you have here is a little bit of psychological warfare well first of all we're not seriously going to compare pat healy's beard to roy nelson or michael chiesa's are we those beard those are different classes of beard preach brother I mean, speak on it. The, like I can almost see like how like Roy Nelson's beard. You don't want that shit in your face. There's probably animals in there. There are organisms and stuff. You don't want that. I understand, especially if he is going to get you down and then try and you know work some top position. Yeah, you don't you don't want to mess with that. I mean, not the extra cushioning thing. I think that is bullshit. No matter how big your beard is. Uh, but one thing I think the beard could do for you if it's bushy enough is it just kind of conceals where your jawline, where your chin is. It's tough, tougher to see exactly, uh, tougher maybe to pick a spot on it uh, to, to swing at. So maybe that's it. But Pat Healy's beard, I thought, was, I mean, that thing is in check. It's kind of a well-kept beard. It's yeah, not so a, different from, like, hobo. Alexander Gustafson's beard or John Jones's beard. For a hobo, it looked like he was going to a, a formal event. What are you doing? He got his beard now? trimmed up, ready to go. I love, though, the picture he posted after he had trimmed the beard. And Pat Healy, not a guy with a wide range of facial expressions, I would say, but he really captured how how he must have been feeling after he was to trim that beard. Well, yeah, it's like Samson. You probably feel like your power has been drained from you. After then he goes out the there and Nermi beats up on him. Yeah, a pretty uh, impressive performance from Habib Namurgomedov. Nermi. Nermi, uh, he, I think, established himself as as a, a guy to reckon with in the lightweight division, probably a guy who deserves a fight against some of the division's elite uh, after going in there and really just handling uh, Pat Healy. Uh, so I don't know, man. It's 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 like we always say, the d- deepest division in the sport. I believe uh, Nermi now has a five-fight win streak in the UFC. Something like that. He's and, not been beaten. Can and, we get over his fucking hat? Can we just well, move on from that shit now? Here's the thing. On the broadcast, they explained the hat, but I missed it. I was doing other thing. I was, I was here, uh, and there was a lot of jabber, jibber-jabbering going on in the, in the room uh, between your wife, Sir Nigel Longstock, and Sir Nigel Longstock's girlfriend, uh, the Lady of Longstock, <laughs> I guess. And so I missed the explanation of the hat. Do you know what it is? Do you know the explanation of the hat? Yeah, because I heard it like six times uh, at the event. Especially, you know, overhearing uh, Normie doing interviews, including one uh, with an ESPN reporter who I'm 90% sure called him Igor right at the beginning of the, the interview, which Normie showed no signs of, of being bothered or even noticing that. I mean, he's, his name probably is Igor in some form. It's probably like his <laughs> middle name or uh, well, his maiden name. I don't know. I don't there it is. Chad Dennis, racist against Dagestanians. Uh, no, it's a, it's a shepherd's hat from the region of... Uh, southern russia where he's from uh he explained in the press conference that when they put that on they're going to war uh so basically when you see Nermi wearing that hat he is not fucking with you um 
but he will go ahead and put that hat on other people's heads. Yeah, I was going to say that's weird because it seems like when he's wearing that hat, like he is actually fucking around a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah, well, except when he is actually going to war. Yeah, well, it seems like uh, when he's taking it off and putting it on different people's heads. I mean, maybe this is just my uh, own Russian bias coming out, but I'm like, man, if those people start showing up dead of radiation poisoning in a couple months, you're going to have a lot to answer for in Ermi. See, saying. a shepherd's hat that your people put on when they're going to war, I couldn't be more into that. That's the greatest thing of all time. And frankly, when he takes that hat off and puts it on other people, can't you just imagine being like wandering into some Dagestani party in, in Dagestan, like in a, in a barn? They don't have parties. Uh, and then everyone's in there drinking vodka, like that one video of Fedor where he's, he's drunk on the vodka. Everyone's just drunk on vodka and they're just putting that hat on everybody. That's what I imagine. <laughs> well, I think that if it was their party, they'd all have the hat. Except you, you're this uh, stupid foreigner that like wanders in and they'd be like, Hey, come in. And they put the hat on you and. <laughs> Maybe I'm just t- speaking out my own fantasy right now. Yeah. Don't I think know. We learned a lot about you. Could here. be. Uh, the next question this week comes to us from Matthew Smith. He writes, with Meathead's recent loss, what do you think is next for him? One more fighter. Will he be off to Bellator? Uh, and hey, let's just say, holy shit, Brendan Schaub's jujitsu, which everyone's been dumping on since he, he did the metamorosis thing. Nailed it. Uh, Comes out there and slips the sweet-ass Darce choke on and chokes uh, Matt Mitrione unconscious. Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, can we agree that Matt, 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 Matt Mitrione could probably be Bellator heavyweight champion right now? Is there a Bellator heavyweight champion right now since uh, their last guy retired with the belt? I don't know. I don't so, know has, hey, man, as far as we know, Matt Mitrione is the Bellator heavyweight <laughs> champion right now. Well, you know... He it would set up a great rematch with Czech Congo since their first fight was such a thriller. Uh, but no, that, that you're right. That was uh, an impressive win for Schaub. Uh, you know, now though, seeing uh, kind of the state of a lot of those, like the guys from other sports who, like especially from football, who you know if they're going to come into MMA, they're probably going to be heavyweights. These bigger guys, it kind of makes it seem like. And I was talking with some of the the other media guys in Toronto about this, like. Whoever the dude was who basically recruited Mark Coleman to, like, he went to the wrestling trials and whoever lost and wasn't going to go in the Olympics was like, hey, I'll get you in the UFC. God, the guy's name escapes me right now. Um, like, couldn't you just basically do that at, like, an NFL combine or something? Like, show up, whoever, you know, it doesn't work out for them in the NFL. You're like, all right, I have a plan B for you. Like, it seems like those guys, uh, you know, they'd at least get to a certain level of the UFC. Right? Just because you look at the heavyweight division right I now? I have to admit, that's not where I thought you were going to go with that point when you first started making it. Because big it, athletic guys. It was, yeah, and yeah, those big athletic uh, football player types, guys that are going to be elite athletes and are that size and have a shallow division with which to make hay. Sure, yeah, those guys have a shorter road to the octagon than almost anyone else, especially Matt Mitrione, whose entire career has taken place in the UFC. Uh, the point I thought you were going to make, which I think is the, is, the, is the point to make here, is that it also doesn't seem like those dudes are that successful. Like they find, you know, especially... There's only been a couple of them. Yeah, but at this point, we seem pretty far removed from the place where we were a couple of years ago with Matt Mitrione when he first broke in, when we were like, oh, hey, you know, this guy could make some noise if, if uh, he's able to continue his learning curve. The problem with those guys is essentially the same problem that you see with a dude like Brock Lesnar. It's they're 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 coming into the sport at an advanced age. They're already behind the game. They they they're immediately trying to play catch up, and that probably just wouldn't work in any other division uh, where where being just a really good athlete is going to get you ahead. I think that only works in heavyweight, oh, yeah, where uh, where uh, you win three fights and shit, man. I don't know. You might you're on the Ultimate Fighter. You win three fights right there. Yeah, no. I mean, you you string together two wins in a row as a heavyweight, and that's. That's officially a, 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 some momentum. That's a, that's a streak right there. How about the world's most misleading thumbs up from Matt Mitrione, where he gives <laughs> the thumbs up and then just immediately passes out? That made me feel like you cannot believe a thumbs up from Matt Mitrione in any situation. You, I'm imagining a lot of different practical applications for that. Like, you know. You're hitting on a girl at like a party at Matt Mitrione's house. You know that she's a friend of Mitrione. You know, you're talking to her. You don't really know her. You look across the room. Mitrione gives you the thumbs up. You think uh, you're good to go. Long story short, you get gonorrhea. <laughs> or you get choked out. 
<laughs> or later that night, Mitrione, who's been drinking, is leaving the house. He's going to drive home. And you're like, hey, Matt, you okay? He turns around and gives you the thumbs up. And that's the last time we ever saw him. You know, though, the, the Dars is kind of a sneaky one. And, like, that's one where, like, you know you're in it. You know it's tight. Uh, and you kind of maybe feel that, that blood being restricted there. Maybe the, the vision starts to get a little dark around the edges. But you tell yourself, like, okay, I've kind of checked it. I've bought myself a little bit of space. I I, I can stand this for a little bit. I, I'm I'm okay. And then you're not. So I can kind of see how that one would happen. Uh, any reason to believe that this win means Brendan Schaub can compete at the higher levels of the of the heavyweight division? Can he? Can Brendan Schaub still be something? I mean, I think when he lost those back to back fights to Ben Rothwell and uh, Big Nog uh, back in 2011, 2012, we thought that uh, you know th- we had the book on him. I think uh, that that he was probably a, a middle of the road heavyweight, probably not going to be anything more than that. At this point, he's 30 years old, which still makes him five years younger than Matt Mitrione, but he gets this impressive win. Uh, was able to shut up the jujitsu haters who had been uh, all over him since his since his grappling match. But does this mean to you, like, hey, this is still a guy we need to watch? You know, it's nice to see his ground game coming along. I think when he can combine like his wrestling ability, you know, he he doesn't have a ton of uh, different takedowns, but the ones he has are pretty good. And if he can get the that submission game going, then then he's a threat to some of those dudes on the ground. I still think, though, that his chin is too much of a question mark, and I think that he doesn't have the faith in it. I think that uh, some of those fights made him lose confidence in it, and I don't think he wants to stand there and, and trade with some of those monsters in the heavyweight division. And any time uh, you go into a fight where somebody knows, hey, this guy definitely wants to avoid this, or he, he feels like he has to get it there, like you just can't go in there... Uh, and give away some aspect of the game. It just it puts you at too great a disadvantage once you get up at those higher levels uh, against the guys uh, who can do everything pretty well. Last piece of listener mail this week comes to us from John Brinkman. He writes, so let's talk about Francis Carmall. Let's do that. Let's do that, John. He's GSP's training partner, six or so UFC wins in a row. So... I guess we just we weren't even going to look that up. We're just going to ballpark it, which is fine with me. Uh, and uh, just plain wrecking fools in the process. Why aren't we throwing his name around in title talk? What? Also, do you think Faraz Zahabi is going to be the next labeled sport killer as his fighters seem to have the most risk-averse strategies discuss? Do we have any way of telling where geographically this question came from? I mean, I'm sure we could put our people on it, but uh, since we're reporting, recording the podcast live and we don't have any people. Montreal. Uh, it came. It had to come from Montreal, I don't know, right? man. John Brinkman? That sounds American. Did it come from uh, Francis Carmont's house? Well, hey, let's be, let's, let's be fair. Carmont does have, I think, five UFC wins in a row. He's won 10 in a row overall. Uh, he just beat Costas Philippou, who... On the way to the cage, Joe Rogan complained or proclaimed had the best hands in the middleweight division. Just saying stuff. Uh, still a guy floating around in that division named Anderson Silva, who I think has pretty good hands, but we digress. <laughs> uh, Philippou came in and looked, he was with a different camp. He wasn't with Sarah Longo for this, so he didn't have anybody to yell, You're breathing! You're breathing, Costa! Probably what did him in. And, and so he didn't know what to do for, when he hit the ground. Breathe. He didn't know he'd been there a million times before. Yeah. But well, no, he, I mean, to the point. Carmont, he's got a pretty good win streak going for him himself. I don't know that he has any over any real top competition, obviously. Yeah, no, if you're just Phil- looking at the records. Philippou is the is the is his biggest win. If you hadn't seen any of the fights, I could see how you might be convinced that Francis Carmont was to be taken seriously as a title contender. So are you are you saying this because he got uh the uh the the split decision win over Tom Lawler, which a lot of people think Lawler won, or are you saying this because you believe his fighting style to be boring? All of that, I guess. Here's the thing he did that I I hate, and I you know I you get to see it when you're at the events, especially like backstage and doing when they bring the guys into the media center afterwards to to do their interviews, and you always see it where I'm gonna say eighty percent of the time when a guy wins an extremely boring fight, he will come back there and act like like he expected a standing ovation when he walked in the room. Like, he just can't understand why anybody would not have enjoyed that fight. Uh, you know, and there's a couple guys who can come in there and they have the self-awareness to be like, yeah, I won, but that was a shitty fight. I'm disappointed in myself. You know, I could do better than that. Uh, and those are the guys you really want to root for. 
Cormont, not one of those guys. He showed up in the media center afterwards, uh, and when you know we kind of he started talking about, hey, I you know I want a top five, top three guys, somebody get me closer to a title shot. And when we kind of pushed him on, like, hey, don't you think you probably need to have more exciting fights? Dana White obviously not too pleased with it, talking about how that fight put him to sleep. Carmont's reaction was to say, hey, I have only six decisions in my entire career. Like, maybe you guys are making too much of this. And it's like, yeah, you do only have six decisions. Uh, but three of those were in your last three fights. Like, it seems like a trend is developing for Francis Carmont, especially when you watch him just take Costa Filippo down, you know, three rounds, three takedowns, just put him on his back, get on top of him, and grunt a lot while hitting air. You can't really expect the, anybody to watch that and be like, give that man a title shot. Well, you know where I'm at on this. I'm not going to hate on a guy because somebody thinks his fighting style is quote-unquote boring. He's already in there, stripped to the waist, fighting another grown man inside a cage for my enjoyment. Any way he wants to go about it is fine with me. Oh, really? In fact, I would say the real problem here, the person to blame for this fight, is... Costa Filippo, who fought this fight like he had never entered his mind that his opponent might try to take him down okay, in that's a mixed-style fight. That's fair. And obviously, that's what Francis Carmont was going to try and do. You could have told Costa Filippo that. Maybe the camp change uh, did not help him in that regard. But you're telling me, say we're, you know, we here at the CME offices are doing a, a white elephant gift exchange around the holidays, and someone... One of the other CME employees. Some of one of our people. Yeah. Like some kind of secret Santa thing gets you the best of Francis Carmel DVD. You're, you're going home like, yeah, I scored. I scored this year. My enjoyment of watching the Best of Francis Carmont DVD collection series is in no way related to how you should manage a guy's career because you think he's boring. Like if a dude goes out there and beats people, he beats people. This is sports. The guys who are the best at fighting within the rules are the guys who should get ahead. And you know what? It's sports, man. It's not always the most exciting things in the world. Sometimes you get a fucking stinker. Sometimes you watch Monday Night Football and it's 50 to nothing and the fucking Browns can't get a first down. Not that they would ever put the Browns on Monday Night Football, but that's because they're terrible, not because they're not exciting. It's you entertainment guys. You're just trying to trying to ruin it for everybody, trying to suck the lifeblood out of our com- competitive sport that we have here. If you had to choose between the Francis Carmon DVD and the Ben Askren DVD, what do you choose? Askren. Definitely. Didn't even have to think about it. Definitely Askren. Anyway, that's going to do it uh, this week for Listener Mail. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in the future, you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link at the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the Podcast. That'll pr- pretty much get you in touch with us. Not that hard. You know, the weird part is, though, like this morning when I, we were, I knew we were going to do this early, and I was like, hey, if you got a question, email it to us now because we're going to record this, this early. Every time, people just start tweeting me their questions. That ain't how it works, bro. No. That ain't how it works. Got to follow the rules. Got to follow the rules if you want to be considered for the co-main event podcast listener mail. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, We're going to roll straight into round number one, and that starts right now. Ben, last week we made quite a bit of mock over the UFC's relentless advertising campaign about how tall both John Jones and Alexander Gustafson are. So tall. Though we didn't really mean to in the process. Maybe we underestimated Gustafson a little bit uh, in this fight, though. I mean, the guy came in as something approaching a 7-1 to underdog, so I don't know that you could really blame us for that. But as it turned out, he gave Jones a much, much tougher fight than those numbers might have indicated beforehand. Um, and I'm not going to say that height and reach had no impact on that because, you know, I think it was significant that he was able to come in there and fight John Jones as a physical equal, which not too many guys are able to do in that division. 
For my money, though, the things about Alexander Gustafson that really gave John Jones trouble were A, his hand speed, and probably most notably, his mobility, especially as it pertains to takedown defense. Yep. Uh, you were there. What did you see? You know, I thought the same thing because Dana White showed up at the press conference afterwards and was saying, oh, you know, you guys made fun of us for this heightened reach promo we kept running. But reach played a, a big factor in this fight. I mean, I'm not going to say it played no factor, but I think it's it's kind of dismissive of Gustafson's skills and what he actually did in that fight to just be like, ah, nope, see, he did it because he's tall. Tall equals success against John Jones. Like, no, I mean, he he did it because he's a really good fighter uh, and because uh, I think he had a pretty sound game plan and, and a lot of uh, answers for the stuff that John Jones usually does. I mean, for one thing, as you said, shutting down the takedowns the way he did. I think John Jones went like, what, like one for 11 or something in takedown attempts? He just had great hips and to the point where when John Jones would shoot for those takedowns, you could see that he would he would get into it and feel right away, this isn't going to happen. Uh, you know, Some of them he stuck with it, tried to get after it, and couldn't get him down. Later in the fight, he was kind of shooting in there, and just, you could feel that you're not going to be able to take this dude down. His hips are too solid. Uh, you know, And if anything, maybe Gustafson fell a little bit too in love with his own boxing uh, and didn't quite mix it up as much. Uh, but you also got to give that guy credit for having a tremendous fucking chin the the punishment he took in that fight you know john jones hitting him with a spinning back elbow and then you'd see him kind of look at him like okay here's the part where you fall down man uh and gustafson is still standing right there and then he hits john jones with the back elbow of his own as of like oh how's that back elbow thing goes it's something like this yeah okay yeah that feels good uh you know I don't think we've seen John Jones face somebody who can stand up to that kind of punishment uh, and keep coming back at him uh, and and do some damage of his own. I, I mean, to write that all off as like, yeah, it's because he's tall and lanky. That's that's why. Uh, I mean, that ignores so much of the awesome shit that Alexander Gustafson did in that fight. Yeah, and some of that awesome shit, by the way, is that John Jones finished something like one of 11 for takedowns for this fight, and Alexander Gustafson finished something like one for nine in takedown shots uh, for this fight, which makes the stats seem pretty identical. However, it's worth mentioning that that's the first time anyone's ever taken John Jones down in the UFC, and it was done by Alexander Gustafson, a dude that you don't think is going to bring a tremendous wrestling game to the uh, to the fight. You know, we know him primarily as a striker. Uh, and so I agree with you. I think that it's, that it is totally dismissive of Alexander Gustafson's skills to, to just kind of chalk it all up to height because I'm not sure that it was the six foot five inches of him that enabled him to shoot in on the double leg and get it against John Jones. I think it was the fact that he had already come out and established a game plan that was far, far more effective than you got to think Jones thought it was going to be. And so Jones is up there worrying about the hands. All of a sudden he gets taken down and put on his back, which, uh, you know, that's not nothing. That's a milestone for, for Alexander Gustafson because we've never seen anybody do that before. Well, yeah, and uh, I mean, this fight, it's not like the the entire fight took place at a great distance where Gustafson just stayed on the outside and jabbed the hell out of him. I mean, there was some, some in-close fighting there. Jones hitting him with elbows. You've got to be pretty close to the guy to be able to do that. Uh, but, you know, there was a a lot of, of everything in that fight. I don't, I don't think that... You can, I mean, the guy's size definitely did play a role. Like, that probably makes him tougher to take down, uh, makes him a little tougher for Jones to bully around, especially, uh, you know, if you get used to fighting middleweights, uh, that maybe you can just kind of pick him up and, and ragdoll him around the cage, wear him around like a, like a button. Uh, and you can't do that to, you know, a guy who is like 6'5, pretty solidly built, uh, big dude. He's just going to be harder for you to push around. Um, but, uh, one of the things that, that stood out for me in that fight from both guys is just the like how gutsy a fight it was where both guys had some bad moments in that fight uh, and didn't come anywhere close to giving up. You know, that's to say like, oh, yeah, well, we found a tall guy to fight this other tall guy and uh, that's what made it a good fight. No, these two people made it a good fight. And I mean, a great fight. Like, honestly, after this one, I felt the same way as after that Dan Henderson Shogun Hua fight that we were both there in person for. The one where I asked you afterwards how you scored it and you replied, awesome. I scored it awesome. This was the kind of the same thing where afterwards the media, everybody on the press row is kind of talking about how'd you score it. And for one thing, people's scores, it seemed pretty evenly split. Some people were saying 3-2 Gustus and some people saying 3-2 Jones. Um, but you didn't find anybody who wasn't pretty convinced that this is already fight of the year 
uh, and probably the best title fight we've seen in recent memory. Yeah, and for that, you got to give Alexander Gustafsson a lot of credit. Uh, just a much more complete game that we saw from him than I think we were expecting. And the one time John Jones was able to take him down pretty late in the fight, hey, he got right back up. Yeah, he, John he, Jones wasn't even able to, because I think conventional wisdom was coming into this fight was A, that Jones would be able to take him down early and often, and B, that when he got him there, it would be a nightmare of of terrible elbows like we've seen so many times before from Jones. Didn't happen in this fight, and I don't know if that was because it was it was late in the fight when Jones finally did secure his own takedown. Maybe he was tired, they were both slippery, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, he didn't even get to really open up any offense because Alexander Gustafson dragged himself right over to the cage and stood up in no time flat. Well, instead of trying to you know, post up in the dude's guard and rain down some elbows and break his face like he did to Brandon Vera, he went to try and pass and then moved to to the side. And just as he was doing that, Gustafson just got right back up. You know, and that I think one of the things that really surprised me about Alexander Gustafson is in how many different ways he had an answer for the things that John Jones does really well. You know, that's a good example. Uh, just you know, dealing with uh, some of his his spinning shit, if you will. Uh, you know, dealing with the 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 distance, not getting trapped up against the fence. Uh, you could see when whenever he would get kind of momentarily caught there, he did a really good job of getting out of there, getting the fight back where he wanted it, uh, and dictated the pace uh, way more than anybody we've ever seen John Jones fight. Usually, it's John Jones just goes out there and decides how how the fight is going to go, and he didn't get to do that one. Didn't get to do that in this one. But you're right when you said that that we did make some mock of him. Uh, and I think a lot of people did. I mean, I think none of us, we thought like, Hey, if he can go in there, take it into the later rounds and not get his ass completely beat, that will be a feat for Alexander Gustafson to have him, you know, show up standing there at the end of five rounds where you just really are unsure how it's going to go. Uh, I mean, Hey, we got to admit we, we were just straight up wrong about the guy. He's way better than we thought. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, at this point, though, it puts him in kind of a weird position just because you go in there, you have the fight of your life against the champion. You do way better than anyone thinks that you're going to do. You, you, I guess you had already established yourself as a force of the, in the division, but if anything, you just put an exclamation point on that. You established yourself as maybe top two lightweight, light heavyweights in the world, but you still come out on the short end. Now, I don't know if we're going to do an immediate rematch here. Oh, we got to do it again, brother. If they don't do that, Gilbert. what do you think? What do you think Alexander Gustafson does? Because it's a weird position to sort of like have this amazing fight that everyone really believes lands you on the map, but at the same time, eh, you didn't beat the champ. I gotta think we're gonna do that again. Well, yeah, but, I hope so, and I wouldn't argue with that. And I, but I mean, there's it's not like there's a shortage of guys beating down the door. You got uh, Glover Tashira, you got Daniel Cormier. If he decides he wants to get down to two hundred five, but uh, I mean, assuming that these guys aren't gonna have to take lengthy layoffs, and it doesn't sound like they are. I mean, they're both beat up. They both went to the hospital, but it sounds like no broken bones, no serious injuries. Uh, I traded text with uh, Eric Del Fiero, one of uh, Alexander Gustafson's coaches at uh, Alliance MMA, uh, earlier today. He said that. You know, physically, Gustafson is fine. Like, he's okay, and that they definitely want a rematch. Uh, and, you know, if they could do it within six months or so, then I think that that's definitely the fight to make because in the meantime, Glover Teixeira could definitely stand to, to make a little more of a case for himself. Daniel Cormier could still stand to prove that he can actually make 205 pounds and compete there. You know, I, I don't think that uh, there are... like there's a next obvious challenger that should supplant that rematch. Uh, such a great fight. And obviously there's the risk that when you go and try and recreate that magic, uh, the second one's going to be a letdown. But uh, I mean, from the UFC for, for a, from a business perspective, I think you got enough people talking about how awesome that fight was that you can sell the hell out of the next one. And you don't have to just do it by showing how, you know, measurements on the screen. Also, a pretty awesome picture of them broing down together at the hospital. Yeah. I hope everybody got a chance everybody to see the, that. Everybody loves the good hospital picture, right? Um, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then we'll move on to round number two. You were traveling today, Ben, so I don't know if you saw this, but my Are You Fucking Kidding Me uh, has to do with the fact that the at John Jones Twitter handle just got besieged overnight by the haters, as you would say, uh, talking about how they couldn't believe that that he had won this fight via decision, uh, calling him nasty names, apparently calling his his uh, wife and mother nasty names. The main problem, of course, in all of this is that is, he's not married, fiance, is that 
at John Jones on Twitter is not John Bones Jones, the UFC light heavyweight champion. It's just some normal dude who lives a normal life who, whenever John Jones does something, has to deal with like 6,000 haters on Twitter going off about his wife and his mom, and in his words, how they're ugly horse, <laughs> uh, which I guess brings up one thing about Twitter that I don't understand is, is the urge to reach out to someone and tell them that you think that they suck and that their mother is an ugly whore. But also, are you fucking kidding me? MMA fans, not only are you acting like a dick on Twitter, but you're doing it to the wrong dude. <sighs> Sometimes man, I just don't even know. So I don't even know your takeaway here is if you're going to act like a dick on Twitter, make sure you're acting like a dick to the right dude. Yes. <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> fucking kidding me? My, are you fucking kidding me? This is also kind of Twitter people being assholes. They're on related. Uh, Dana White, uh, a couple days before UFC 165, talked to reporters in Toronto. was talking about uh, Ronda Rousey, you know, kind of getting fed up with the negativity that she gets on Twitter. Um, here's what he had to say about this. Quote, what I've noticed about the women that is different from the men I can go on Twitter any fucking day of the week. You can say whatever you want to me. Give it to me, right? Women have a harder time with that. All the women have a harder time with that. With people saying horrible things about them, calling them horrible names. Women have a harder time with that stuff. They're more emotional than men are, and they take stuff harder than guys do. Ronda Rousey might be the toughest chick in the world, but at the end of the day, she's a girl. First of all, I'm going to say, are you fucking kidding me? Uh, To anybody, if you're going to sit down and tell us the differences between the sexes that all men are like this and all women are like that. And you are not an early nineties stand-up comedian. Just stop right there. Don't go any further. Uh, but second of all, are you fucking kidding me? Dana white, you're going to talk about how other people are emotional. You does Dana white realize that anger is an emotion because he gets pretty emotional not to mention a bunch of other people who work for the UFC get emotional. If if other UFC fighters, if male UFC fighters did not get emotional about things, I don't think we would have seen quite so many doors destroyed over the course of the many seasons of The Ultimate Fighter. Anger, rage is an emotion. Just because, you know, uh, some of the female fighters might not break shit when they get upset, it does not mean that they are any more or less emotional. People are emotional. Fighters are especially emotional. Fight promoters who go right past outside voice and outside in a construction voice when talking to people indoors at press conferences could also be fairly called emotional. You fucking kidding me with this? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, here's something that I think tells you a little something about our sense of John Jones's perceived invincibility. Yes. Or at least how dumb I am. Because uh, you know sometimes where your brain has a stupid thought before you can like stop it, before you can step in and be like, no, that makes no sense. Don't think that. I had one of those uh, when John Jones early in the fight was first cut and there's blood leaking down his cheek. And the dumb part of my brain, before I could stop it, saw that and thought for the briefest moment, oh, man, is, is Gustafson cut? Did some of his blood splatter onto John Jones's face? Because it just seemed kind of inconceivable that Alexander Gustafson would come in there right away and cut John Jones open. And then, lo and behold, five rounds later, dude is all busted up. Now, I'm going to say... In a weird way, this is kind of a good thing for John Jones to go and get all busted up, show that he can get himself in a dogfight, and uh, still keep coming, that he's not going to fold up when he finds out that he's not going to win right away. Uh, I think we saw a new side of John Jones. I think this is maybe a turning point for him. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I think we always wanted to know how he would respond to a war. And in this fight, we got to see that, you know, he got his, he got his eye cut open. As you uh, alluded to, he got his lip totally busted up to the point that he was having a hard time just getting through the platitudes at the end of the fight during the, the post fight interview. Uh, and apparently according to his camp, we found out later, uh, he hurt his foot pretty early in the fight. Not that I want to get sidetracked by stuff that sounds kind of like an excuse, but you're right. You know, now we know that John Jones can rebound from a, from a tough fight, which is, you know, we saw a little bit of that in the Machida fight, but we had never seen him really taken to the wire like this. Um, and so now we know he can dig himself out of a hole. And, and in the end, uh, you know, this was certainly represented a huge step and a great performance for Alexander Gustafson. But maybe when we look back on it, it's really just another piece of the Jones legacy, because I think you're right. I don't know if I'm going to say it's a turning point for him, but I think it's definitely something that he needed as a fighter, especially as a fighter who seems so aware of uh the history and like historical perspective that, that, that he's, you know, he's treading through and that he talked a lot about breaking Tito Ortiz's light heavyweight title defense record. Uh, and so he's a guy who knows, who knows that history is going to look back on him someday. And I think that this was a fight, the kind, a kind of fight that he needed to sort of uh, fill in that legacy a little bit. The question I guess we're going to have to come to at some point is whether Alexander Gustafson's great performance was in any way uh, a result of a poor performance by John Jones. Whether John Jones took him too lightly, uh, Jones mentioned on Twitter afterwards that he he felt a little off uh, during that fight. I mean, although getting your face split open will probably make you feel like that. Uh, you know, is it possible that uh, you know they rematch and John Jones shows up and and, and takes it to Alexander Gustafson uh, once you know? things are lining up for him a little better or he's just taking it more seriously. Yeah, no, of course it's possible. Anything's possible. I don't want to take anything away from Alexander Gustafson, which is, I feel like that's a conversation that does that to say this was more about a bad performance from John Jones than a good performance by Alexander Gustafson. I don't really believe that. I mean, and he didn't look bad. That sounds like post fight fighter stuff to me. Now here's the thing though, about John Jones that I think, I was thinking about this today that I that I feel like John Jones is an entirely different psychological animal than somebody say like Anderson Silva. Like and this is just maybe gut instinct of mine talking, but like when I think about Anderson Silva, I don't think of him as a dude who is going to get more fired up than he's ever been in his career and suddenly go in the gym and train harder than he's ever trained before in order to get his title back. I don't see him as that kind of dude whereas as soon as John Jones heals up and really gets to thinking about this fight and starts to get the rabbit ears on a little bit, which we know that he does, regardless of what he tries to pretend. Yes, we do. He's going to hear the people talking about how they think Alexander Gustafson deserved to win this decision. And I really do believe that John Jones will train for that rematch if it happens harder than he's ever trained for any fight before. And we will probably see a better version of John Jones in the cage for a second fight with Alexander Gustafson than we, than we saw on Saturday night. And I'm not, I'm not going to dismiss anything that Alexander Gustafson did. It's just that John Jones is a different kind of dude. He's the kind of dude that this is going to drive him fucking crazy until he gets to go in there again and fight Alexander Gustafson a second time. Yeah. I think you're probably right about that. And I do think, as we mentioned a little bit in the first round that, Maybe some of it was that um, it's been pretty easy for him to dominate fights recently, and some of that might be that he's fighting blown up middleweights. Uh, but even against guys who are former light heavyweight champions, he's he's going out there and dominating him. And so you could kind of see that maybe he goes out there, he hits Gustafson uh, once or twice with some of his good stuff, kicks him upside the head, hits him with one of those elbows, uh, you know, smashes him with some knees, and then is kind of looking at the guy like, "Oh, you're still here? Oh, what the hell, man?" Didn't anybody tell you that that's that's where you fall down and lose uh, and it didn't happen. And so maybe, you know, that's something he hadn't experienced before in a, in a fight. Uh, and, and here he is. Uh, it will be interesting to see how he responds to that. I, I mean, I think that these very questions, though, are more proof that the rematch is the fight to make. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and, you know, if I can level any criticism against John Jones and especially in this fight, one where. Uh, it seemed like a lot of people thought he was behind for a, a good portion of it. Um, 
But if I if I could level a, a criticism at him, it's that he seems kind of lackadaisical in there at times. And I, you know, I don't want to say Machida-ish, but even in a fight like this where uh, he's getting everything he can handle from Alexander Gustafson, for a long time, it kind of seemed like he had this sort of like ho-hum attitude about it where he just thought, oh, well, at some point I'll do something crazy and the other dude will lose and I'll get to win. But it just didn't seem like there was a real sense of urgency from him at any point until the fourth and fifth round when I think he realized that Gustafson was tired and then right towards the end of the fourth, he he hurt him. And then you could see the, the killer instinct uh, kick in. But for a long time there, uh, if I had to guess, I would have thought that John Jones hurt his hand and not his foot because he just wasn't doing a lot in terms of, uh, in terms of, of offense. He was throwing an awful lot of kicks and some, some elbows, some, uh, some spinning elbows and some lead elbows, but like not a, not a ton of like of punches. And that could have just been because of Alexander Gustafson's style. But it just, as I watched it, I was just like, man, does, does he know that, that everyone thinks he's losing right now? Because he's, he's not acting like it. Well, you know, and, this is one of the things that I wrote about my, my post-fight column, though, that, uh, you know, Dana White was saying beforehand that for whatever reason, people don't like John Jones. Uh, a lot of fans just haven't really come around on him. Uh, and this seems to me like the kind of fight where if you're still going to be a John Jones hater, I mean, you can still not like the guy's personality. You could still, you know, if you want to think he's fake or he's arrogant or whatever you want to think, uh, you know, maybe this is, it won't change your mind. But you got to admit that, uh, you know, that dude's a fighter. You know, it's yeah. not just that like, before maybe you could tell yourself like, oh, he's just, you know, athletically gifted. He's he's way better uh, a physical specimen than these guys. He's some kind of martial arts prodigy. Uh, and so he's just going out and schooling guys and, uh, you know, it's making him look awesome. This is the kind of fight where, uh, you know, the Brock Lesnar dudes, the dudes who are just physically gifted but don't know how to handle getting hit in the face, uh, they crumple up and lose that fight. And he definitely didn't. I, I mean – Say whatever you want about what you think about his personal life or his life outside the cage, but you got to respect that man after this. This it seems like the kind of fight where it's going to force some people to kind of come around on him, I think. Uh, and in that way, uh, a good thing for him. It, it makes him look more more relatable, uh, ironically more human after he came out in a T-shirt that read, not quite human. Just just tempting the MMA gods why there. Did, just... why, why they do that, Chad? Why do fighters love to tempt the MMA gods in, in such a fashion? I don't know if we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I'm starting to get the impression that maybe Nike didn't put its best people on the MMA shirt line. <laughs> it's just a feeling that I have. Didn't Wasn't the theory before that it was the – when they got around to doing the MMA t-shirts, it was like Friday afternoon at like 4.30. <laughs> uh -huh. Got to think of some stuff. Get out to the Beaverton's hottest uh, 5.30 after work drinks place. Yeah. There's a TGI Friday's happy hour to get to. Uh, I, yeah, I think you're right that at this point, if you are one of these people that just really hates John Jones, it's starting to get to the point where you have to acknowledge that that's a you problem and yeah. not a John Jones problem, yeah. right? You, you a hater. Because it's, it's, it's hard to see where the ammunition is coming from at, at this point. Um, speaking of irony, though, it seems to me as I've watched the last few fights of his – it seems sort of ironic to me if we get to the situation where it's John Jones's body that ultimately betrays him. We saw him get his arm messed up in the Vitor Belfort fight. We saw him have the just horrific toe injury in the Chael Sonnen fight. In this fight, he hurt his foot, apparently. He got, he got cut over his right eye. For a guy whose physical gifts we talk about so much, it seems to me like if there's a chink in the John Jones armor, it's... Maybe his body. It seems like his body might might kind of come apart on him as we move forward. You know, but I'm I feel, not in imminently, but at some point, I feel like we've been worried about that with GSP in a, in a, in a kind of similar way for, for a long time. The way you know GSP does not take damage well. You know, you you hit that guy in the face a couple times, and he'll show up to the press conference, look like he got hit by a bus. Uh, he's just one of those guys where some guy, you know, like a guy like Nick Diaz can take it and he'll get a bunch of swelling maybe. But like other than that, you know, he just, he doesn't show it quite that much. And, and GSP seems like he has tissue paper for skin at times uh, and yet doesn't seem to have held him back any. So, you know, and the same thing with John Jones. You can point to the Vitor Belfort fight or the the toe thing and the Chael Sonnen fight. He dominated both those fights. So uh, I, I'm not prepared to get too worried about it just yet. Yeah, not not a ton of stuff to worry about. But I I tried. I tried to worry about something. Yeah, and I appreciate that about you. Well, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three.
All right, Ben. Well, here are the only things that I'm willing to say can be definitively said about how John Jones and Alexander Gustafson's fight should have been scored. And that is Gustafson won the first. Mm -hmm. John Jones won the fourth and the fifth. The second and the third were very, very close. If you think Gustafson won both those rounds, then you have Gustafson 48-47. If you think Jones won one of those rounds, then you have Jones 48-47. If you thought Jones won both those rounds, then you have Jones 49-46. If you think that those rounds were a draw, then you have it 47-46 Jones. Personally, I had it 48-47 for Jones. I don't know how you had it, but all these people running around screaming about a robbery, I don't know, man. I just feel like I don't live on the same planet as them. It was a very close fight. You can say you think Alexander Gustafson won, and I'm fine with that. I just don't think robbery is the word here. I have a theory about these people that I've been developing over many years. Oh, well, this I can't wait to hear this. Uh, I feel like, especially on the internet and with social media, uh, it, it naturally amplifies uh, people's passions, people's opinions. I, I feel like no one wants to get on Twitter and be like, well, hey, man, I had Gustafson winning that one, but it was close either way. Hey, don't leave it in the hands of the judges. Blah, 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 blah. No one wants to do that because, you know, hey, no one notices you on Twitter if you're just being a reasonable fucking person. Uh, you have to be a louder idiot than all the other idiots. Uh, and so I think that it, it forces people or at least encourages them toward these extreme viewpoints where uh, a close fight that went away I didn't agree with is a robbery. Uh, a, a TV show that I, I didn't think was that good is the worst TV show of all time. Uh, you know, a, a movie that I just came out of and enjoyed is epic. Uh, you know, it forces people to like try and lunge out toward these extreme uh, poles on either end. Uh, just because that seems to be the the the, the medium, uh, like that its effect on people. Because I feel like if you sit most people down and have them watch that fight, you get ten people to watch it. You know, you're going to get a variety of different scores throughout that. Most reasonable people realize anytime it's that close, hey man, anything can happen. Yeah, I think you might be be onto something with that theory. I like that. That sounds more like something that I would say, but. What? Is your anti-technology, everyone acts the fool on the internet stance. Sounds like you're burgeoning pretty close to becoming old man folks over there. No, I mean, I'm, I'm having an opinion about it. I'm not, like, hiding from it in my bomb shelter, which is something you would do. Okay. Well, my, my bomb shelter is dope, though. It's, <laughs> can't wait for the I will say this for, end your, times. for your bomb sh shelter. Uh, awesome posters you got up in there. You could probably use some work on stockpiling food and ammunition, but uh, you, you do have that sweet warrant poster that I, you know. Well, that's timeless. Yeah. When we, we all come out of our bomb shelters years after the end times, that warrant poster is still going to, that's going to be good to go. That's going to be as fresh as the day you put it up. <laughs> Here's what I'm worried about, though. I feel like we've gotten to a point in this sport now where every single close judge's decision is just going to cause uh, uh, an outpouring of ridiculousness. And like every reasonably questionable referee stoppage is just going to cause an outpouring of, of, of people who are pretending like they're up in arms about it. I mean, in this situation, I feel like most people thought that the judges got it right. I think most people thought John Jones should have won. But even among those people, there were people that were like, well, 49, 46, that's just ridiculous. Just like, man, can't we just shut up? Like, no. can't we just take the decision and be like, yeah, okay. Yeah, no. that seems right. No, we are incapable of that. We are absolutely incapable of that. There's, that's, that's unreasonable to think that we could be that reasonable. Come on, man. Have you met us? Have you met this world? Yeah, we're not that great. You know, okay, but here's the thing. I, I thought, uh, to pull a little Chad Dundas on you, I thought you were going to go a different way with that. I thought you were going to say, hey, why is it that every time you know there, there's some close fight or something or some questionable aspect of it then we want to talk rematch right away uh the same way you know we did it in the lightweight division a whole bunch uh now it looks like we're going to do it in light heavyweight and most of the time i would agree with that because i feel like a, a lot of times with title fights guys are going to be pretty evenly matched 
not be able to finish each other inside of five rounds, and then you're going to end up with a judge's decision that could go either way. You can't just keep doing rematches all the time. Uh, this one, I feel like I have a you know an okay time if you create a rule that just says, okay, we won't do a rematch just because it was close, because that's how this shit goes sometimes. But if it was close and awesome, then okay, we'll we'll do we'll do one rematch. Yeah, I'm totally cool with that. I have absolutely no problem whatsoever watching these two particular gentlemen fight for five more rounds. I think that that will be outstanding if and when it happens. It's just that we've gotten to a point now where we're watching this fight as it's happening, and we get to the fourth round, and Jones has that flurry to to end the round, and Alexander Gustafson is getting way up there on the Coleman Index. Mm -hmm. Just like looked like he wasn't going to make it through, which... Getting his Shogun Hua on. The people that want to talk robbery kind of conveniently forget about that at the end where you were like, if it went six, your boy probably gets KO'd. So Wait, are you invoking the Stockton Unified rules here? <laughs> if the fight went on forever without without end. Yeah. But then Jones seemed to be the one who suffered more visible damage. So That's maybe true. He they cancel each other out. He couldn't walk out of the cage, so it's a draw, Stockton rules. But as we're watching <laughs> No such it, thing as a draw in <laughs> Stockton right. rules. God damn it. Uh it's the fourth round, and I know that Jones has just come back, and we're tied up on my scorecard. We're going to the fifth. I know it's going to be close. I'm already thinking, well, fuck, I should just turn my phone off. I should just stop looking because I know that, that no matter what happens, no matter who wins, 50% of the people are just going to clown themselves after this is over. Just going to go ape shit And tweet at the wrong John Jones about how his mother and wife are whores. Well, it's kind of sad, though, right? Like in this sport that we're at the point where like as the fight is happening, we're all sitting there. We're all thinking, well, this is going to be a shit show when it's over. I don't know if we're all thinking that. I think the people who are the, the shit show drivers uh, are kind of excited about it in that way. But Maybe. I'm, and apparently 50% of the people are watching the fight thinking Gustafson's got this in the bag. It's yeah. over. He's won every round. Yeah. Uh, you know, and this, I think, uh, this this is the same basic reason why I don't read internet comments either on my own stories or on other people's stories because th the people who insist on making their their bullshit crazy voices heard are the people who go through the trouble of leaving an internet comment or you know yelling about how this is a totally bullshit robbery uh, in a close fight like this uh, most because reasonable people I think, it's easy to ignore them because either they don't go through the trouble of leading a comment because hey, they read it and they enjoyed it or they didn't, but then they moved on with their lives and or if they did leave a comment, it was, you know, actually pertaining to something that they read in the article and not just something that they made up in their heads. Uh, or they're getting on Twitter after a fight like that saying, oh, man, that was awesome. Uh, but we're, we're ignoring those people. And that's the same reason that, that I don't read internet comments. It's not just because those people are assholes, but because I realize the effect it has on me that I could read five reasonable comments and then I'll get to one uh, infuriatingly stupid one and that's the one that'll bug me. I, it, it stands out above all those others. The same way like the tweet about how this is a stupid robbery and John Jones's mother is a whore like will stand out above the people who just said awesome fight, both guys are warriors. Like you, you read that one and you move right on. It's not infuriating enough to stick in your head. Like that's a problem with you. You the 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 one who's perceiving all this. Full old man folk status has been reached. Everyone's opinion deserves equal consideration, Ben. Oh, I did not say that. Everyone's opinion that is, is is carries the same amount of weight. No, not true. Anyway, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here. Ben, what is your just saying stuff for this week? I'm just saying, I fully understand why people are getting pretty excited about Henan Barrow, the monster. Dude is exciting to watch. Dude puts a hurting on people. I'm just saying... Once we start comparing him to, to Floyd Mayweather just because of his winning streak, maybe we're getting a little carried away here. Dana White uh, said uh, at the post-fight press conference that uh, the closest thing to Mayweather, quote, is this kid right here, meaning Burrell. He's gone undefeated for eight years. Uh, Floyd has gone undefeated for 17 years. Do you know how hard it is to go eight years undefeated? Seriously, think about that. He doesn't get enough credit for the record he has and what this guy is capable of doing. And it's not just like he's undefeated and he goes to decision out points you. This dude fucking destroys you. 
I will not disagree that he is destroying some really good fighters lately. However, before we make too much out of his win streak, uh, it's worth noting that uh, it's not as if those all came against the, the highest level dudes. Uh, the last few years, you know, when he's been in the UFC, yeah, he, he's been fighting uh, some, some tough guys uh, and totally deserves the credit he gets for that. However, let's not also forget that some of that win streak is composed of wins over guys like Donde Donde, who sports a career record of 0-1, and one. or Danilo Noronha, nailed it, uh, who sports a record of 6-11, and 11, according to Sheridog, or as recently as 2009, Marcio Nunes, uh, who is 5-7 and seven at the time of this recording. I'm not saying that that means his record or his streak is bullshit and doesn't deserve to be talked about. I'm just saying... Pump the brakes on the Mayweather comparisons for right now on Hen and Brown. Just saying. Just saying. Man, I'm just saying that this past Friday night, a woman who may be the best female mixed martial arts fighter in the world fought in a Muay Thai fight in a ring outside on Fremont Street in Las Vegas in front of a gift shop. Nice. Now, Cyborg... Santa, I guess she's not Cyborg Santos anymore. Cyborg Justina, Miss Miss Cyborg. Uh, Everybody knows who you're talking did, about. Did in fact beat the ever loving shit out of a French woman who took the fight on one week's notice and just got a goddamn hurt and put on her. However, while I'm watching it and I'm watching Tito Ortiz looking totally weird uh, in his ringside <laughs> interviews with uh, Michael Schiavello and Boss Rudin, I'm thinking to myself. God damn it. This woman is never fighting Ronda Rousey. I'm just saying. Oh, man. That's such a depressing just saying. Why you got to bring fighting us down? Fighting in front of a gift shop <laughs> in a ring with big old weights tied to her fist. What do you think? Big old gift spongy shop? weights out in front of the D casino. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week. We'll be back next week to break the rest of this stuff down, all the new stuff that happens. As for right now, we're done. We're through. We're out. I'm saying, though, what if you want to take in a fight uh, and then get one of those I Heart Las Vegas t-shirts? You know, maybe a uh, a keychain that identifies you as an official bikini. What's up? It's a great opportunity. Yeah, I mean, that's great. You're, You're...